This is episode 61 with award-winning science journalist, former national class runner for Canada, and author of the new book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, Mr. Alex Hutchinson. Hey everyone, this is Jason, and I'm excited to be together again because today's show is one that I was looking forward to recording for months. I'm speaking with Alex Hutchinson, one of the brightest and most forward-thinking journalists of our day, and he spends his time analyzing the latest science of performance to tease out what's useful, what the media gets wrong, and how we can upgrade our training to become faster, healthier runners. Alex holds a PhD in physics from Cambridge, a master's in journalism from Columbia, and is a former national class runner from Canada. He's an award-winning science journalist who's contributed to major media like Popular Mechanics, Runner's World, and The Globe and Mail. Now, I've been bugging Alex for about two years to publish another book. (laughs) I'm glad he's listened. His first, Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, is one of my favorite exercise science books on the market today. The entire book, is a series of questions and answers based on the latest research. And some of the questions, like, should you have sex the night before a race, I know you've been curious about for a while. Before we dive in, I want to thank Karina for leaving a wonderful review of the Strength Running Podcast on Apple Podcasts. She said, Jason and his guests are smart, approach a variety of topics, and are pleasant to listen to. I look forward to these episodes each week. They also go a little deeper on the science of running at times, making this a must-listen for the running geek. Well, running geeks, buckle up, because we are definitely ready to geek out on today's episode. Thank you, Karina, for leaving this review, and thanks in advance to those who leave reviews in the future. They truly make my day. All right, without further delay, please welcome Alex Hutchinson to the Strength Running Podcast. Hey, Alex, welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be back. So I've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite some time about your new book, Endure. So if nothing else, this is just going to scratch my own itch and uh, at least be exciting for me. So <laughs> thank you for making some time today. Well, I'm, I'm glad to make your day, even if nobody else listens. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your book. Your book helps explain what limits endurance performance and some of the accepted and potential avenues for breaking those limits. And in in this conversation today, I want to focus more on breaking limits. And so let's start with you. You uh, come back to this, this story in your book from your own running career, moving up to the 5K as a 1,500-meter runner. And, you know, those middle stages of the race where you inevitably slow down, but then you come back from that and you have this great finishing kick over the final 800 meters or the final kilometer. And, you know, what you say is that this demonstrates that you still had a lot left. You weren't slowing down because you lacked oxygen or fuel or were incredibly dehydrated. It was what was going on in your head. Can you share the story and and what writing this book and doing this research taught you about what I think is the nearly universal predictable slowdown in the middle of these kinds of races? Yeah, so this was, to backtrack, I started out as a middle distance runner running mostly the mile or the sort of shorter 1500 meters mile. And so moving up to, you know, 5k for I'm sure for a lot of your listeners sounds like a short event, but for me, it felt very long. Like you said, I was I, when I as I was trying to master the the five thousand meters or the five k, 
someone would take my splits for me. And so I would, I would look, you know, analyze my races and like, what happened in that third K or that fourth K? Why was I going so slow? And then at the moment of, you know, feeling like I, I must've, you know, I think to myself, oh, I must've just gone out too fast. There's, I'm dying. I'm dying. And then the last K I'd suddenly be able to pick it up again. And like you said, this is a kind of universal experience, but it really felt like a sort of almost a moral failing, right? Like I'm an experienced runner and I should be able to pace myself. And yet time after time, I would have a slowdown, you know, three quarters of the way through the race and then finish with a flourish. And like you said, if you have that finishing kick, it shows that your legs were capable of going faster earlier. When, if, you know, if you finish the race at a sprint, you're like, man, why didn't I start moving earlier? Why, you know, I'm, I'm sprinting as I cross the line. I should be collapsing as I cross the line. And yet it never happens that way. And so in the book, I, I go into a lot of detail about some of the research on this phenomenon and the fact that it doesn't just happen to, to, you know, chumps like me. It's like you look at the, you analyze world records over 5,000 meters and virtually every one of them, the first and last kilometer are faster than every other kilometer in the race. So even the best runners in the world do this. And, you know, we can, we can get into what this means or what it tells us about how our brains control ourselves. But, but for me, one of the great things was just taking away the idea is like, I'm not a failure. I'm not weak. This is kind of a, a statement of the human condition, not a unique weakness that, this is how we pace ourselves. So we're not perfect. We're not very few people are able to, or we're very rarely able to execute a perfectly even split. This is just the way it goes. Yeah. And I think it is very encouraging for recreational runners because, you know, I, I think this is even more pronounced uh, at that level. You know, a lot of runners go all fast and then, you know, maybe there's a quarter mile left or a half mile left and then they're able to pick it up. And I know for me, at least, I always look back on these races and I wonder, well, if if I can run the last half mile or the last mile that fast, why couldn't I have given a little bit more effort in the earlier miles, even though it felt like I was on death's door? And I, and I think that's such a common experience that a lot of runners have. But it's good to know that even all the way up to world record level performances, that that pacing approach seems to be not only... Uh, common, but, you know, applicable at, at every level of performance. Yeah. Now, you know, one thing I should say is we, we kind of want to balance or dance a kind of fine line in the middle there because you don't want to aspire to be slowing down in the middle. <laughs> just, just because everyone does it doesn't mean it's optimal. You, 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 you want to minimize that slowdown in the middle and, and try and keep your pace as even as possible. But understand that there is going to be a slowdown in the middle. Sort of the other part of the equation for me is be confident that there is something left in the tank. No matter how hard you try to save or, or try not to save any energy, for the most part, it's really hard to override that instinct to save a little energy. So when you are coming to the finish, no matter how tired you've been, if you are telling yourself and believing yourself, like, don't worry, everyone has a finishing kick. I will have a finishing kick too. That can kind of, I think, help you tap into it. Once you start to believe that, don't worry, there's always a kick there. For me, at least, I really felt that once that, that that was something that helped me access my finishing kick and finish more strongly. But you don't want to turn that into uh, like, okay, it's the third K. I, I should slow down now because that's what I'm supposed to do. You, you, you have to fight against it, but just understand that you're never going to fully win the battle. I really like the idea that because this happens, because, you know, almost every runner is able to to have a, fit, a good finishing kick at the end of the race, it should give runners confidence that they do have something left. Even even if they're feeling terrible, even if they feel like they don't have that extra 
uh, ounce of energy left in them to kick hard at the end, they do. And so I, I, I like that. I think that's a real actionable takeaway for runners that no matter how bad they're feeling, they can still override uh, that impulse to you know just hang on until the finish and, and actually speed up a little bit. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I think, look, obviously, occasionally you see someone who literally like collapses at the end and it. So it's not a 100% ironclad rule, but yeah, 99 times out of 100, if you're able to kind of light that, light that spark, you'll find that you can actually accelerate at the end. Let's talk about perception of effort. This is such an interesting concept to me, and it, it seems to be a big determinant of performance. And when I look back on my own running career, my first year of running, for example, I remember being on the high school cross-country team, and we chanted grimace before every race. And when I think back to those first couple years of cross-country and then track, uh, I remember a culture that encouraged suffering by acknowledging that races were hard and that they were supposed to be hard and that, you know, literally the more suffering that you could endure and put yourself through, the better you would race. And and so I'm wondering if you can talk about the role of, you know, the institutional norms that I experienced on my high school team. Um, can those change that perception of effort? So in other words, does surrounding yourself with positive peer pressure help you run faster? It's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I could make arguments for why your high school environment might have been excellent and helped you run faster or why it might have been counterproductive and helped you run slower. I don't think we can have universal answers for what works for a given person. But I think being aware of the different ways that these sorts of things can affect you can help you try to find an environment that works for you. So what I, what I mean is one of the big things that I think is important in developing as a runner is kind of like you were saying, normalizing the idea that, uh, that suffering is okay. That if you're in the middle of a race and your legs are kind of screaming and your, your, your breath is really short, this doesn't mean you're dying. This is just the nature of the sport. And it's really important as, and as you become more experienced as a runner, you, you, you're able to start interpreting those signals as as information rather than as alarm bells. So you, so you just say, oh, my breathing is really hard. That means I can't maintain this pace forever. Uh, as opposed to my breathing is really hard. I better call an ambulance and stop running. So in some sense, I think creating that understanding that discomfort is part of the, the bargain, is part of the activity can be helpful. But the other, the, the flip side of it is that ultimately, if, you know, if you want to get the most out of yourself, being efficient and being being able to stay calm and have things feel easy is also a very valuable tool. You don't want to overemphasize how painful and how much the running is or how, how much suffering you're going through because, uh, you know, like you were saying about perception of effort, in a sense, what really matters, at least according to the, the research that I've been looking at, in a race, you don't slow down because your lactate levels get too high or because your heart gets your heart rate is simply too high and you can't beat anymore. You slow down because of how your brain interprets those signals. It's you're you're gathering information about from the environment and from the rest of your body and you're interpreting can I keep going or can I you know do I need to slow down? And if if the overriding narrative in your head is this is so hard, this is terrible, oh my god, suffering, it's all suffering, then you're influencing how you interpret that signal, those signals from your body, and you're interpreting them more negatively, and you're you're maybe more likely to slow down prematurely because you're in this mindset that it's all about suffering. So, I'm giving sort of two completely contradictory answers there, and I don't know exactly how to reconcile them other than to say that you kind of have to try to find a balance between being prepared in advance for the, the inevitability of of suffering, 
without obsessing about it or, or, or fixating on it during it. You want to try and convince yourself that it's easy during the actual act of running. And so, but I mean, the short answer to your question is these things do affect our performance. And that's one of the sort of fascinating areas of most fascinating areas of research to me over the last few years is these studies that look at what happens if we manipulate someone's mindset or manipulate the thoughts in someone's head. How does that change their performance? Well, that, I think that's a great answer. And and I, I don't actually think that what you said was contradictory. And you're making me really refine my question here. So thank you. Um, I, I think what I better meant was that we had an understanding that it was normal for races to hurt. With that said, it was so normal that, you know, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't something that uh, we were really taught to get too worked up about, to freak out about. And, you know, I've been in other situations where the kind of general mood, and it, it changes over the years when you're on a team because there's different teammates that, you know, you kind of go through your high school or college career with. But there's definitely been other times where uh, I think there have been runners that don't want to experience too much pain in a race. And, and I think you're definitely right that, you know, we should try to make races as easy as possible. And uh, maybe that's where we can go next. Um, I, I think, you know, we have to both try to make the race as easy as as we can make it, but at the same time, recognize that it is going to hurt, it's going to be very difficult. But those things can coexist at the same time. What do you think are some of the ways that we can make races easier so that our perception of that race-related fatigue and discomfort isn't overwhelming? So I'll start with something that I'm not sure is super practical, which people always get a kick out of and, and has gotten a lot of attention. During Nike's Breaking 2 marathon last year, a lot of people noticed that Elliot Kipchoge was smiling. Like, like clockwork, every mile or so, he would put a big smile on his face, which seems sort of silly. And so a guy in Northern Ireland, uh, Noel Brick, he was studying this 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 idea. And, and earlier this year, he published his results showing that when he put runners on a treadmill and, and he asked them to smile. And when they, when they were smiling, their running economy was 2% better. So they were able to run, maintain the same pace uh, while burning 2% less energy when they were, when they were told to smile. This sort of lends itself to, to sort of cliche or, or uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily think that just going out and, and grinning for a whole marathon is, is actually going to be a sustainable tactic, you know, in the same way that Kachogi was just smiling to himself once every mile or so. But it's, I think it's a kind of indicator of the kind of things that you can use to, to alter how you're feeling about things, how you're doing and how you, even how you're moving in this case, uh, you know, relaxing your body. So sometimes, uh, you know, rich role sometimes says, you know, mood follows action. So you don't smile because you're happy. You smile because, or, or because you're relaxed, you smile and that will help you become relaxed and comfortable. So, so even things like facial expression can make a difference. And so personally, like I'm still too much of a skeptic to go out for my runs and just grin. I, it doesn't feel natural to me. But conversely, I, I've become much more aware of the times when my face is contorted into this, you know, big grimace of death while I'm running. And sometimes I'll, I'll be out there, you know, I'll be running a tempo run, trying to maintain a pretty good pace. And I'll just become aware. It's like, why is my face like, you know, pulled back in this, in this, angry, tight grimace, I can just relax my face. It's, it, it doesn't have anything to do with how fast I'm running. And then it, it will, I will feel much more relaxed when I'm not gritting my teeth like that, you know, and hopefully that'll help me stay relaxed and, and, and run faster for longer. So, so that's one thing is just like superficial things like facial expression. I think a sort of more, a deeper and 
more powerful and more versatile approach is what sports psychologists call motivational self-talk, but which, you know, in essence really just involves becoming aware of the words in your head, of the internal monologue, of what you're telling yourself, you know, during a race. Are you telling yourself, oh God, this is so hard. Why do I do this? I hate this sport. There's no way I can maintain this. Or are you telling yourself, come on, you know, you've trained for this. You can do this. Keep pushing. This is one of those things that that sounds sort of hokey and that we had a sports psychologist when I was in college working with the track team. This is 20 plus years ago. And we just thought it was a joke. She taught us all this stuff and we we just ignored it. But in the last few years, again, there's been some a bunch of research showing that this really works and, and that the idea is that it really helps alter the effort you perceive. It, it, it sort of It's altering how your brain is interpreting all those signals from the rest of your body. And so I think that's something that like that would be my number one piece of advice for someone trying to implement this kind of idea is start is first of all become aware of what you say to yourself you know in races or in hard workouts and then try to change it if there's some negative stuff in there you know i always think of you know my internal monologue during a race as you know what if what if my internal monologue was a person on the sidelines would I like that person on the side of the track saying things to me every single lap if those things are, man, you look tired. I can't believe you're running this slow, you know? So, I, you know, I, I think about it really practically. Uh, if you can't be your own cheerleader, then who is going to be? So I think it's not only something that is going to help you run faster, uh, it, it's just an act of being kind to yourself. You know, you don't need to be your biggest um, critic or, uh, you know, anti cheerleader when you're out there racing, you can be kind to yourself and it is going to help you run faster too. Well, I'll, I'll tell a little funny story about, <laughs> I, I, so a couple of weeks ago I ran into, uh, I was at a, a running event and I ran into a guy who was actually, it turned out I'd never met him before, but he was the lead researcher on a study that I cite a lot about self-talk, about the power of motivational self-talk. And he had done this study showing that in cyclists, you know, two weeks of motivational self-talk training really enhanced performance. And he said there was one guy, you know, there's always individual variation in how this stuff works. There was one guy who was in the motivational self-talk group who didn't get better. For some reason, motivational self-talk didn't work for him. And they couldn't figure out why. And, and, and you know, it, they never really did. But about six months later, the guy, he, this, this cyclist emailed the researcher and said, hey, I figured out the, I, this motivational self-talk, how to make it work. And the researcher was like, well, how, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, all those negative thoughts that were going through my head, all those, all those, uh, those kind of, you suck, this is terrible. You'll never keep this up. All that stuff that kept going through my head during tough parts of races. Well, I figured if I can't change that, I should just try saying it out loud to my competitors. So, so he, he was in a cycling race and whenever he had a negative thought, he would just yell it at the cyclist next to him. And he said, it worked like magic, man. They, they would always drop away because so that you, and you think about it like that. It's like these things you're telling yourself, if you were to yell them at someone else, that other person would be totally demoralized and, and totally like, uh, you know, unhappy with you. So why would you say to yourself, what would, what would be so negative for someone else? <laughs> I, I love that. That's so great. Um, you know, have, I wonder, Alex, have you heard of this concept of running a race at the very beginning of your racing season and and almost making sure that it's a suffer fest? Maybe you go out harder than you're supposed to. Um, and, and the idea, and I read it in Matt Fitzgerald's book, uh, Brain Training, is that a hard early effort recalibrates your sense of effort so that future races, even if they're faster, uh, presumably you're, you're pacing them a little bit more appropriately uh, so you're not, you know, kind of going out over your head. But 
what you're essentially doing is adjusting the brain's perception of effort, and that's going to help you later in the season. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. It's, I mean, I, I read Matt's book too, and I, I would say when I look back at my own running career, it's something I wish I had done more things like that. You know, not necessarily at the beginning of the season, like or or, or whatever, but I know that. I, I tended to be a very cautious racer. I was a very kind of over analytical racer. So I was very careful about my pacing and making sure I didn't go out too hard. And so as a result, I, I really didn't have a lot of experience. I, I was, I was so risk averse that I didn't really figure out what it would feel like to be going out way too hard. I rare, I rarely had that experience of what would it feel like to go out 10 seconds faster, faster for the first mile. And I think it's really hard to know your limits uh, if if you don't sometimes exceed them, so I think there's some 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 real benefit to just putting yourself in position. Sometimes putting because we we all get tied up in the results, right? Like every race, it's like, what am I going to get a PR? Is this going to be as fast as I I think it's going to be? And it's, I think it can be really valuable to have some races where you totally disconnect and say, I, you know, I don't really care what the time is or what the position is today. Today I'm gonna is about learning to race, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to make sure I run the third mile as hard as I can, or I'm going to go out with so-and-so or I'm, you know, to, 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 to feel it and to, to experience, for example, to experience going out really hard and, and just suffering. Uh, and if you, if you take away the pressure of worrying about what your finishing time is going to be, then you can free yourself up to experience and maybe recalibrate your concept of what you're willing to, or what you're able to tolerate. So I think there, I don't think there's like necessarily one specific way of doing that, but I think that that general idea of, uh, of, yeah, of, of, of reminding, of teaching yourself or recalibrating your sense of how hard running can be and, and how, how much you can tolerate, which is almost certainly more than you think you can. I think that's a great idea. Back in college, I, I called this, uh, this kind of strategy of racing, um, going out way over your head and then just letting Jesus take the wheel. So <laughs> you, are, you are kind of putting yourself in a position where you don't have all the control and you're, uh, you know, let's say it's a 5k and you go out through two miles, you know, 15 or 20 seconds faster than, than your PR pace, what's going to happen in that last mile? And, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, if you race too conservatively all the time, or if you always try to have even splits, those kinds of racers probably won't have as many breakthrough performances as the athlete who puts themselves out there, who goes out fast sometimes to see what he is really, truly capable of achieving. Now, on the flip side of that is I think the athlete that takes more risks is going to have more uh, I'll say, quote, failed races, even though I don't really consider them failures. You know, as a coach, I look at this as as learning opportunities. You know, what data did we get from a, you know, quote, failed race? And how can we use that in the future to better inform our racing strategies and and really uh, the goal times that we set for ourselves, because I think we can learn a lot more about our strengths and weaknesses as runners by taking some of those risks and just seeing where the chips fall uh, when you cross the finish line. Yeah, and, and you know what's what's really interesting is, of course, that runners are different, right? So, so one thing that I find really fascinating is, is you can predict a little bit about how runners pace themselves with some psychological. Uh, simple psychological questionnaires about, you know, risk aversion and, and sensation seeking and things like that. And so some people tend to be 
uh, you know, consistently go out hard. Like there's a guy, there's a Canadian marathoner named Rob Watson, who's a bit of a, a legend up here. His dad basically taught him in high school his uh, racing strategy, which he, he called FFTF was the acronym that he, that he used. It was fade from the front. That was how he always raced. It was just go to the lead. He, so Rob actually led the Boston Marathon for 10 miles seven or eight years ago or something like that because he just always went to the front. And so for a guy like Rob, the, as successful as he was, I think he ran a 213 marathon or something like that, um, everyone watching was like, wouldn't it be nice if Rob ran one marathon where he didn't go out trying to run 210? Because who knows what he could do if he wasn't always fading brutally in those in those last you know six miles of the marathon. Whereas for someone like me, who is the total personality opposite, the, the the real advice would be the opposite. Alex, why don't you try fading from the front now and then? So you kind of, before you decide what you need to do to mix things up, you kind of have to do some honest reflection on what's your personality? How is it that you've raced in the past? And what is it that you need? Because t telling Rob Watson, Rob, you need to take more risks and, and lay it out there sometimes is, is you know, taking Coles to Newcastle. He's already, he's, he, he's already doing that. And he, so there's, and there's lots of people in both camps and, and, and everywhere in between. So it's kind of like, there's no right or wrong. Like you said, the harder you go out, the the, the lower your probability of success is. So that there's the, there's all sorts of trade-offs you have to make. But the one thing you can say for sure is that if you race the same way every time, you're never going to find out what your what your optimal approach is or what your limits are. Yeah, and the thing I think about racing as well is that there are many different racing strategies and, and approaches to it. And I think if you want to become a, you know, a good runner, you have to experiment with them and you have to be someone who can fade from the front or someone who can, uh, really put in a big attack with, you know, a half of the race left and come back from behind. And I think all of those methods of racing really increase your skill level as as a runner and a racer and you know in the long term that's going to make you uh, a more strategic racer and i think ultimately a faster racer and alex it seems like what we've been talking about over the last 20 minutes or so has been um overriding the brain's protective circuitry which is a phrase that you use a couple times in your book that i i wrote down i absolutely love it and we've been talking about some ways of overriding that protective circuitry. And I think maybe it would be really helpful to take a step back and talk about why the brain has that protective circuitry in place uh, in the first place, and maybe some additional ways that we can help override our brain's intent to always protect us, even though we don't necessarily need that protection. Yeah, it's so... I, I, I should say right right off the top that this topic is hugely controversial in, in you know, scientific circles right now. There's lots of debate as to how or why or whether the brain has protective circuitry. In a sense, a lot of what my book is doing is 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 looking into what questions people are arguing about as opposed to settling what the final answers are. But I think that something that's pretty clear is that the limits that feel physical to us when we feel like we've pushed to our to to the very edge of what we're capable of often they're they're mediated by the brain and so you can demonstrate this with various sorts of studies by manipulating the brain by running electric current through the brain or by just tricking yourself or or by having using subliminal messages uh, or images and if if you can change your endurance with just by manipulating the brain you know that it was the brain that was setting the limit in the first place and and why would the brain do that well again we don't have clear answers but we can sort of make general evolutionary arguments that it's 
probably a good idea to have some system that holds you back from the edge so that if you know if you're chasing an antelope 20 miles from your your campfire uh you don't just keep sprinting until you keel over unconscious because then you're going to die you have this increasingly insistent braking system that's that's holding you back holding you back making you first of all making it really uncomfortable so you want to slow down or stop so that you're not wasting energy when you're too close to the edge and then ultimately before you just go until your heart you know explodes or whatever uh, or or you completely run out of oxygen and die it shuts you down it, like you know if i were to step out the door right now and and just sort of try and run myself unconscious to run i, I wouldn't be able to I, I would be too tired to run myself to the point where i couldn't run anymore if you if you see what i mean how exactly that happens is hard to say it, does it happen against our will and unconsciously or is it just a very simple thing that exercise just gets harder and harder until we're unwilling to keep going and we consciously decide to stop there's lots of different debates about this and nobody really knows the answer but the big picture is, yeah, we're one way or another, we're wired to not be able to go all the way and, and, and knock ourselves, you know, unconscious or whatever. Or uh, one of the great, so Tim Noakes is one of the scientists who, who really uh, advanced this idea in the 1990s. And one of his favorite slides is that he shows at talks is taken just after the finish of the 1996 Olympic marathon, where the gold and silver medalists are jogging around the track, waving their flags and, and, uh, the race was just decided by three seconds. And his point is, look at this guy, the silver medalist. He just missed out on immortality by three seconds. Do you think he wasn't pushing absolutely as hard as any human can push in the last lap of that marathon? And yet he crossed the line and grabbed his flag and started doing a victory lap. He didn't he didn't keel over and die. So there's no matter how hard he was willing to push, he wasn't able to push himself to the point where he couldn't run anymore. That's it's just so interesting to me. And and it seems like it seems like this is a skill. This is a psychological skill of doing everything you can during a race to, you know, almost quiet your brain down and uh, not slow down and to to beat back the the impulse that you have to listen to those voices in your head. You know, after writing this book, what do you think are some of the more effective training strategies that you can incorporate into your day-to-day training for helping you learn this skill? Because I think it is a skill that you can develop over time. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the big messages I took away is that this isn't something that people are just born with. It's something that you work at and and get better at over time. There's some really fascinating research on pain thresholds and pain sensitivity. And there's lots of research showing that athletes are willing and able to tolerate more pain than non-athletes. And so you might wonder if it's just, well, they, they don't feel pain the same way or they've kind of deadened their nerves. But what they find, so if you do pain tests, let's say you have a steadily increasing painful stimulus like electric shocks or something like that. Athletes and non-athletes at the same point will say, hey, that that hurts. Um, so their pain sensitivity is the same. They feel pain the same. It's just that the athletes are willing to, to tolerate it for longer as uh, the stimulus gets more and more painful. And so like you said, this, what researchers think is this is basically, basically comes down to psychological coping mechanisms with the sort of repeated exposure that they get from training. Uh, athletes uh, learn these tactics to, to, you know, they can distract them. So they learn to not think about the, the pain and discomfort, or they learn to reframe it, like we were talking about earlier, as information rather than as as, as alarm bells. They remove the emotional content. As maybe slightly boring as this sounds, I think what it turns out is that one of the most effective ways to develop the, these mental skills kind of overlaps with the effective ways of developing your physical 
uh, you know, your physical endurance is that regular exposure to training really does it. And there's one interesting study that uh, in England a couple of years ago where they arranged it so that one group of people did just sort of moderate intensity, not not easy, but not hard training. And another group did a lesser amount of really intense training, like intervals. And they designed the study so that both groups improved their physical attributes by the same amount. They both had the same improvement in VO2 max and lactate threshold. So they, in theory, they should have both improved by the same amount in their actual, they did it with cyclists, so they should have improved their cycling time by the same amount. But in fact, the group that did the, the high intensity training had a bigger improvement in their performance. Their improvements were sort of proportional, roughly proportional to how much their pain tolerance improved. And because and only the high intensity group had an increase in pain tolerance. So, uh, so this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but the, the I think the takeaway here is that one group got better at suffering because they suffered in their training. Uh, and I, I don't mean to, this to sound too, too doom and gloom, like, you know, running, it must hurt. You must suffer to get to for greatness. But, but at a certain point, you have to get out and do some workouts that make you uncomfortable because that's the, the most powerful way of developing your ability to handle that discomfort. So I think this goes back a little bit to what you were saying about that Matt Fitzgerald style, go out and do a really uncomfortable uh, race at the beginning of the season. But I think there's other ways of incorporating that into training that sometimes, you know, there are elements of a workout and this is not this is not something you want to do every you know twice a week or anything like that but sometimes you want to just do parts of a workout where it's going to hurt and it's it's not because you're trying to improve your vo2 max or or do any particular physiological thing you're just making sure you're sort of uh putting yourself in that situation where your finger is in the flame and you have to hold it there and you and you develop those tools now there there may also be some more systematic ways if you're not good at it you, you know then we go back to the things like the self-talk to evaluating why you're not handling it very well but the first stage is uh exposure therapy basically make make yourself hurt this resonates with me because i understand that when we get on the track for a workout for example and you know we're doing a bunch of repetitions we're not just training our muscles we're not just training our heart and lungs and cardiovascular system. We're training our mind. We're training our brain to withstand the stress of running fast because I don't think anybody is going to doubt that running fast is stressful and it can uh, provide a certain level of discomfort. And training isn't uh, simply focusing on one element of your body. It's a full body experience and that certainly includes your mind. And, you know, with when runners build up their fitness enough where they can do really race-specific workouts, I think from a training perspective, that's hitting a lot of the uh, very similar psychological uh, experiences that you're going to have in the race itself. And I think that's one of the best ways to uh, mimic not just what you're going to experience physically, but what you're going to experience mentally on race day. And and that's going to help you be a, a much smarter racer and who's who's a little bit more mentally tough, I think, at the end of that race when it comes time to uh, really put it on the line. Yeah, and I think, you know, something that's really totally under underappreciated, when you when you think about beginning runners, the transformation, let's say t- someone decides they want to run a 5K in six months and they start running three times a week. Of course, their body gets fitter. Of course, their heart gets stronger. But I think people often underestimate how much their mind has changed, how much how much of the improvement is that they're they're willing to, they, they've become accustomed and willing to, to, to suffer uh, a little more. Because when you start, it's it's a very unfamiliar feeling and and it's uh you know it's scary to 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 feel the feeling of 
the feelings you encounter in a hard interval workout are unpleasant. And if you haven't encountered them before, you, you panic a little bit. There's these huge gains and just the willingness to suffer that happen when you, when you take up running. And what people maybe sometimes forget is that those, those gains continue over a long period of time. And in fact, the, well, you know, there's one interesting study in elite swimmers looking at pain tolerance over the course of a year and finding that it waxes and wanes. And this is pain tolerance, not just performance. This is pain tolerance with like a tourniquet around the, the arm, squeezing the arm. And so a totally different kind of pain that shouldn't have anything to do with their swimming fitness, but it does. When they're, when they're, as they get closer to their big goal race, their pain tolerance goes up. When they're in their off season, their pain tolerance is the lowest of the year. So even, and these were elite swimmers with, you know, a decade's worth of high level training. So it's not something you, you learn once and then you never have to learn again that suffering is is important. It's, it's, it's something that through each season and in each race buildup that you do, you're building your, your physical fitness. But like you said, you're also, you're also building your mental fitness. You know, just the other day, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, one of my athletes ran a half marathon and she did really well. She you know, ran uh, about the time that we were hoping. And the interesting thing that I found about this experience was that in the following two weeks, uh, really up through yesterday, she has had her best long run and her best workout of the last couple months. And she kept telling me, she's told me more than once now, after that half marathon, these workouts are so much easier. And they're really not in terms of, you know, their, their objective, absolute difficulty. But I think what has changed is her perception of how difficult these wor the workouts, the long runs are based on the race. And by having uh, a hard race on the schedule, she's steeled her mind to some running discomfort. And, and you know, I've experienced it as a runner. And when I experience it as a coach, it's this really great aha moment where we've almost unlocked some hidden reserve of potential just by doing some hard things. And that allows the athlete to uh, to tap into that potential and to get better. And, and I just love that. And I love seeing it, you know, on kind of a practical day to day basis. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I mean, honestly, it's like those sorts of transformations and experiences are one of the things that keep me keep me interested in running and they're, they're kind of a, almost a great metaphor for life too it's like do something hard everything else feels easier and, and and to to be able to then get it get onto that new level where you're like okay i'm doing this workout now it feels good and i was doing the same thing a month ago and it felt terrible uh it's a great feeling uh, that's that's why and it, it, it's sometimes what i say is uh, i love getting out of shape um, because there's nothing better than getting in shape. There's nothing better than that feeling of progress, uh, both physical and mental, of, of building your, getting, getting stronger and stronger. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk more about uh, doing it for the right reasons. And this is something that you talk more about in the book. Um, and it's really the role of intrinsic motivation. And, uh, you know, this makes me wonder if runners who are simply having more fun or those who find more joy in running are setting themselves up for better performances. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of advantages to you know finding joy in your activity. For one thing, uh, if you want to predict who's still going to be training hard six months from now or five years from now, the people who are motivated, you know, by the right things or motivated intrinsically, those are the people who are who are going to you know stick with it, and they're the people who are going to make the biggest gains in in the long term for sure. So just in terms of like practical realities and, and enjoyment of life, it makes sense to, to find reasons not to be looking externally for, uh, you know, I want to do it, uh, you know, to impress somebody or to, or even to lose weight or whatever the case may be. 
uh, I've come around to the to the idea that these sorts of questions about what what is it that you're pushing yourself for that it ends up affecting your your whole approach to the the activity and and how how well you're able to push yourself. So yeah, I I, I think that's that's really important both performance wise as well as sort of long term health and enjoyment wise. I struggle with this concept as a coach because I I don't know if I can help runners with this. I don't know if I can teach this. Is this something that is is truly intrinsic or can we work on it? Is Are there ways to become more intrinsically motivated and to to run for the right reasons? Uh, what what are some of those right reasons and, and how does that relate to uh, increasing our, our motivation? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist. I fully 100% believe that it is possible to work on these things, to, to change your motivation. I think, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, when people are, are, are running out of a sense of obligation or a sense of fear or whatever, I often that maybe that's rooted in misconceptions about what health being healthy means. And so sometimes changing people's understanding of, of what it is they might get out of running and what's important can help. Having said that, doing that, changing people's motivations and working with them to understand to understand why they're currently running and what what, what other reasons they might have for for running, I think that's really hard. I I, I definitely don't have faith that I'm I'm capable of or, or well qualified to help people do that. Um, and I think I would say this: when when I've thought about coaching, one of the biggest barriers for me is that I don't know how you light the fire in someone else. Uh, and and I know for me it was just I I was always highly highly motivated to do this. And I, I, and, you know, it's very hard to self-analyze like what, why was it that I was always so eager to, to keep running? I, I don't know. And that makes it harder for me to, to try and help other people, uh, replicate that. And I think, and in some cases, I think people who've, who've had to struggle with their own motivation, who've had to, to go on that journey to, to figure out what makes themselves tick, they may be better placed to, to help others follow them on that journey. So, I mean, I guess, so to, just to reiterate what I said, I, I'm optimistic that it, it can be worked on and it's definitely worth working on, but boy, I, I don't have easy answers or, and, and I, I, I suspect it's a really individual thing that in, it involves really understanding each individual's specific situation, that it's, it's really hard to, to impose a cookie cutter motivation on, on anybody. I think I need to get a sports psychologist on, on the program here to talk more about this. Uh, I'd yeah. love to learn more about it. You know, when I, when I look back, my, my number one reason for running was always, I want to see how fast I can run. And, you know, I, I'll be the first one to say it would, it bordered on obsession for a long time where that's all, really all I thought about, you know, it's part of the a big reason why I chose the school that I went to, uh, you know, for college and for a very long time, I was just interested in seeing how fast I could get. And for me, that was enough motivation to, you know, for, for you know, about a decade and a half of, of really strong training. Um, but you, you're right. I, you know, as a coach, I don't know how to teach that. How do you make someone interested in either getting faster or, you know, seeing what the limits of their endurance might be or any one of the other completely valid reasons for for going out uh, and being a runner? Uh, you're right. I, it's very difficult. And that might be the million dollar question. That might be, you know, what what separates some of the best from some folks who who are not going to help runners perhaps reach their potential. But man, I, I wish we had those easy answers, Alex. 
Yeah, trust me, I'd be uh, I'd be selling them for a million bucks if I had them. But uh, like you, I I was started out motivated by the desire to get to to just see how fast I could get. And and but if I ask myself, you know, I'm 42 now, why am I still running? I'm not sure I can really articulate why. Uh, you know, other than that, it makes me feel good to go out and push my limits and to to find out where I'm at on any given day. And so I think there's a certain point where if you can get over that hump, like so for me, once I'd been running for several years, then when I had an injury and couldn't run and I had to decide, well, do I, do I want to go back to running after being injured for a couple of years? And I, I realized, ah, I guess I don't really, I mean, I want, still want to get faster, but ultimately running will be worthwhile to me even if I don't get any more faster. And that was kind of a watershed to me. I was about 20, 22 when I, when, when I had that sort of realization of, ah, it, it's worthwhile no matter what the outcome is, even though the, I still care about the outcome. But that was because I'd already had a number of years and had, had realized, had come to realize that, that it had intrinsic worth to me as well as extrinsic worth. But so, you know, I, I can say, argue that a, you know, running to lose weight is not the best way to go. It's not because, you know, weight loss is hard. And if you're just doing it to, to drop weight, you'll get frustrated. But the truth is that there are lots of people who start running to lose weight and they stick with it for a year or two. And then by the time they've either lost the weight or or have decided that the weight loss isn't the crucial thing, they've discovered that they like running for its own reasons. So so maybe sometimes, even if you get into running for the quote unquote wrong reasons, you you have a chance to discover what, what more it has to offer. But yeah, finding the finding the right levers to pull in in a different person, I think that's a a tough job. And 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 I think also it's like when I think of some of the best coaches I've worked with or or talked to or experienced, and it's like. I guess I, I I wouldn't necessarily separate out those coaches by, well, that guy really understood VO2 max or, you know, that guy, he had a lot of really interesting interval workouts that I'd never heard of before. It's more like that guy really made me want to run. And that guy, you know, uh, he, he sort of, he knew how to pull my levers. And so um, I think sports, psych- like you said, sports psychologists are, I think really deeply about this and have, uh, have various models of, of motivations for, for actions that, that people have. And you should definitely get someone on to, to talk about that. And I, and I can suggest some names later, but there's also people who have an intuitive understanding that it doesn't come from books, but when you think of coaches like, uh, like Frank Gagliano or, or Matt Centrowitz, who's someone I trained with for a while, and they're, they're totally like, they're, they're uninterested in the, the, the science of running, but they, they, they have some ability to, motivate people yeah you know if they could bottle it like again they'd be uh, they'd be rich <laughs> well i think no matter why someone starts to run uh the the plain truth is that running has so much to offer so i, I just hope that runners stick with it long enough so that they discover all that running has to offer and not just one or two side benefits uh like weight loss things like that because uh, i think some of the more um personal development type benefits of running are much more powerful. And uh, I think, you know, it takes a little while to get over that hump of competency at the very beginning. But once you do, once, you know, you really start building some fitness, uh, running can give you a lot in your life. Uh, and, I, and I hope more runners will, uh, will experience that. Well, I just want to finish up uh, with a quick observation I had and and probably one of my favorite aspects of the book. Um, so after finishing, one of the more exciting conclusions I took from it was that no matter what the numbers indicate, so whatever your VO2 max is, um, the altitude, your lactate threshold, your weight, all that you know, kind of nerdy stuff, the race result 
is also dependent on how deep you can dig in this hidden reserve of energy, you know, how how much you can pull from that. And, you know, that's subjective. And it depends on what you have between your ears and, and how well you can utilize that. And I think that's exactly the thing that makes racing so exciting and unpredictable and why I love the sport of running. So your book made me appreciate running even more. So Alex, thank you for this contribution to the discussion of performance. I I really enjoyed it and I hope our runners pick up the book. Thanks, Jason. It was fun to chat about this stuff. All right, Alex. Once again, thank you for coming on the podcast. This was super insightful for me and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And there it is. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Alex. I really hope you check out his new book, Endure. It's the best running book I've read in at least a year. Also, thank you again for leaving an honest review on iTunes. I appreciate that so much. And finally, if this podcast has helped your running, I would love it if you recommended it to your best running friend or your running club. The more listeners we have, the more episodes that I can produce. Until next time.